0: to another podcast with me Toby Webb and joining me is an old friend of mine John Entine uh, of the Genetic Literacy Project. John good to see you again how
1: are you? I'm doing great great to see you and glad to say that the Genetic Literacy
0: Project is now 10 years old. 10 years old. Well, you and I first met about 20 years ago when you used to write for a magazine that I published called Ethical Corporation. And you used to enjoy puncturing some myths and writing a a column, which some people thought was sometimes controversial, I thought was always fascinating. And since then, it's great to see what you've done with GLP. Just for those listeners who aren't familiar with the Genetic Literacy Project, just tell us briefly what it is and tell us who and who it isn't funded by. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you very much to
1: ask me about that. The GLP, like I said, has been in existence 10 years. It looks at really genetics and biotechnology, which I think uh, with the advent of CRISPR, everyone recognizes this could be the defining technology of the next 20 or 30 years. Everything from developing vaccines to fight COVID, genetic manipulation to rid us of diseases and, and embryo manipulation. But also used in agricultural issues developing new strategies to rid us of diseases in agriculture pests of one kind or another and synthetic biology in industrial production and i was aware that as this technology was beginning to gain traction 10 or 15 years ago that there was a lot of misinformation about it obviously anything this disruptive challenges people's values and raises all kinds of ethical religious and practical questions so i thought that was an arena that needed to be explored, and we started out with 12 visitors on our first day, and, and now we get 40,000 visitors a day, and it's the most popular biotech genetic website in the world. And how do you pay for it? Well, it's a nonprofit, 501 5013C in the United States. We were foundation funded. We've maintained that policy throughout our history. In the United States were mandated by the federal government to publish what are called 990s, our federal filings. If you go on the internet, you you'd see accusations that the GLP is funded by Monsanto or is a corporate front, which I have to say, if we're funded by Monsanto, they're doing a poor job in keeping us afloat because we're scrambling for money every year. We haven't ever taken any money from Monsanto and we are not linked to any corporation in any formal or informal way. Anyone wants to look at our coverage of dicamba, which is a pesticide used in the United States and developed by Monsanto slash Bayer, which we've eviscerated because of screw-ups by Monsanto, it would be a pretty odd relationship to go after your major funder. So those charges are really by advocacy groups because we challenge the unnuanced view that biotechnology is a danger. And we try to promote the view that all technologies, whether organic or natural of some kind or synthetic and developed by corporations, can play a role in agriculture. And I think we need to be more solution-focused rather than product-focused There's been an undue emphasis on who makes a product rather than does the product actually do some good in the sustainable challenge world that we're
0: facing right now. So when it comes to agriculture, John, it seems to me people almost seem to sort of glory in a misunderstanding about chemistry. And given how long we've been discussing this stuff and given how much science is going into it. Now, I know R&D and agriculture is nowhere near what it should be. Right, it's nothing compared to human health. Right? It's, it's it's actually pretty disgraceful as a, as a species, how little we put into it compared to human health. Having said that, billions have gone in. Yet still, there's a phenomenal amount of misunderstanding around issues like organics versus what you might call more synthetic chemistry. Why do you think those myths are still propagated? Why is there this level of ignorance, I guess, about science? Well, I think there's an association with food.
1: Um, it's so personal. It's so visceral that is unlike anything we have in the world. When you talk about a medicine, and there's many medicines that are biotech-based, we've had treatments for decades, and of course, almost all of the vaccines that have been developed for COVID are biotech-based, based on one form of genetic engineering or another. We have given that a pass for quite some time, but somehow when we think of consuming something, putting it in our bodies and not necessarily knowing that it's part of the process system. People react in, in very personal and I think sometimes bizarre ways. So I think it's important to educate the public that biotechnology and genetic manipulation of food is no different than the way the natural world genetically manipulates things through evolution. And I think once you get people to understand and focus on results, consequences, and the potential for having a environmentally sustainable future which draws on the best practices of organic agriculture and cutting-edge biotech-based agriculture i think they will see the world differently and younger people i think are breaking out of the old line view that
0: we should be suspicious of chemicals and genetics so from previous podcasts we've done it's my understanding that something like mutagenesis which is where you blast genes with radiation until you get a freakish anomaly that you want that gives you what you want. That's sort of fine, right? In the sort of more natural side of things, yet gene editing isn't. Can you just explain that that contradiction for those who aren't aware? One of my favorite fruits
1: is sweet grapefruit, which I can go into my local organic food store, Whole Foods, and buy at an extraordinarily high price because it has an organic stamp on it and it's about two thirds the price if it's not organic. People don't realize how that was made. It was made by over seven years, subjecting the seeds of grapefruits to a combination of gamma rays and highly toxic chemicals, creating hundreds of thousands of random, unmarked, unmapped mutations until one came up that was sweet. And once they developed that seed, that's what became the basis for ruby red grapefruits. And now they're sold as organic. That's fine, but somehow gene editing where you target one gene and you map it and you know exactly what it does, not hundreds of thousands of random mutations, somehow that is viewed as unacceptably dangerous. So from a science rational point of view, this argument makes no sense. And I just think people can't wrap their heads around the fact that all the fruits and vegetables and grains that we eat today have been genetically modified by man. Look at corn which originated as uh, nine hard black nubs that were inedible. It used to be ground into a powder that was uh, a paste that we used to eat. You look at things like Brussels sprouts and kale, which existed as a weed called brassica a few hundred years ago, and man manipulated that. So I think we have to get away from the myth that somehow food is being manipulated in some nefarious way. Yes, food is being manipulated by man because we put our stamp on nature, We just have to continue to do it in ways that are sustainable and combine our knowledge with what we've learned in organic farming over the decades and centuries.
0: Well, let's talk more specifically about an example, because, you know, as you and I said before we turn on the tape, we can talk in broader terms all day. And it's a fascinating debate, but it's always good to get a bit specific. So we were talking on email and earlier about about copper sulfate and its use in agriculture. Let's talk about wine as an example. Just run the audience through really what, what you were saying to me earlier about its use in wine. And let's see where the conversation goes from there.
1: Europe is deemed wine growing region in the world, and it is also one area of agriculture that is facing the most pressure because of one thing, downy mildew, which is a real threat to wineries specifically in Europe because of the soil composition and the weather there. And we really have no way to control Dawny mildew and its uh, fungal effects on grapes, except for the use of a natural compound called copper sulfate. It's been used for centuries, really. It's mixed with lime and water. And it's, uh, creates something called a, a Bordeaux mix, which is absolutely essential, especially for making champagnes as an example. But guess what? Copper sulfate, the Bordeaux mix is one of the most dangerous chemicals that is used in agriculture today. It's so dangerous that the European Food Safety Authority has issued some studies and recommendations saying it should be phased out. And in fact, there's a study going on, which will be released in 2022 in Europe to make a final decision about whether that will happen, but it causes all kinds of problems. It's basically metal. It kills beneficial organisms and insects. It suffocates the soil. It has mild carcinogenic effects in humans, but there's no alternative to it. So I'm not here to demonize the use of this chemical. There are no synthetic alternatives that are particularly effective at fighting uh, dawning mildew. So this is a classic problem in farming. Farmers can't sprinkle organic fairy dust on their crops to get rid of pests. Pests are pests whether they're in an organic field or in a conventional field. You need something that's effective. And in this case, the only thing that's effective in organic fields and in conventional fields is something that if not used properly and even when used properly in occasion can be really, really harmful. And it also has effects on the applicators, the people who apply this. What is the lesson here? The lesson isn't as some critics of organic agriculture say, aha, this is hypocrisy. We should just ban copper sulfate and use the level playing field organic and regenerative agriculture. People want all kinds of synthetic chemicals banned. Let's ban theirs and see how they like it. That's Neanderthal. That's not what we need. We need a better and nuanced understanding of pests in agriculture and what you need to address it we absolutely should continue to look for alternatives to it, synthetic or organic. But until then, unless we wanna ban the wine industry, we need to use this and ultimately also focus on gene editing of disease resistant cultivars, which in the end could be the solution that essentially puts all chemicals on the sidelines. So the lesson is, let's not demonize any chemical. It's odd because glyphosate was given a clean bill of health by the same European Food Safety Authority that is recommending that we consider banning copper sulfate. Yet glyphosate is on the way to being banned in Europe and copper sulfate under pressure from the organic industry was approved for another few years. This is a haywire decision on how to handle these things. We need a much more thoughtful debate in understanding how we balance out the threat of pests and the use of pest
0: control, crop protection chemicals, whether organic or synthetic. Do you think the application of these products has moved on? I mean, I I referred to you in an email exchange, You know, I'm lucky enough to go to Bordeaux and to great growing regions quite a lot. I stood in a vineyard a few years ago, one of the world's most expensive wines, and the CEO and the winemaker said to me, if you were here in June 20 years ago, this vineyard would be blue as would every vineyard on the left side of the Gironde River in Bordeaux, where we were in Margaux. They said the amount of copper sulphate we used to use was horrific for downy and powdery mildew. Now it's a tiny, tiny proportion of what it was. And we're incredibly careful about how we use it. They've gone biodynamic in that particular chateau. So they're very proud of their agroforestry and you know the species cultivation and so on. I suppose we could say that the application of these chemicals is now much smarter than it used to be. And I guess that also applies to things like glyphosate as well.
1: I think the lesson of chemical usage, and you can see it in charts generated by the European Union and also by the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, is that the toxicity of chemical usage in agriculture has been on a steady decline now for going on 25 years, since about the mid-1990s. So whether it's the use of highly toxic chemicals to control weeds, and the move towards glyphosate, which is a very low toxicity chemical and away from more powerful and potentially toxic substances like atrazine, or the recognition that you can actually achieve many of the same goals in wine growing with a whole lot less use of copper sulfate, farmers are incorporating sustainable agricultural techniques in their farming. That's the direction we want to go. And we want to have availability to use all tools in the toolbox, whether they're organic tools or whether they're those that are
0: used by conventional farmers. I've met some great growers who swear by glyphosate and say they couldn't manage without it because their other impacts would go up. Then you see some studies cited by opponents who say, well, the latest studies say that glyphosate has a strange effect on the human gut microbiome, about which we know very little. We also know very little about deep soil or even shallow soil as well. So I suppose there's an awful lot more science to be done about both the bacteria in the gut and and in the soils till we actually know more about what's happening.
1: I would actually challenge you a little bit on that. I've counted more than 4,000 studies on glyphosate. Every single major regulatory or oversight organization in the world has issued a conclusion on the safety of glyphosate, both from an environmental perspective and from a human health perspective, and we're talking about the EFSA in Europe, we're talking about uh, the EPA in the United States, Health Canada, um, the agencies in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Africa, three World Health Organization agencies, every single risk-based agency in the world has said that glyphosate is perfectly safe. In fact, it's one of the safest chemicals out there. It's so odd that the anti-biotech industry, and that's what I would call it. The critics of this are really an industry, have focused on the one chemical that's probably the safest chemical out there is an herbicide in the world and safer than the every organic alternative out there. It's much safer for a mass scale, high volume agriculture, much safer than the organic alternatives. I think that debate is closed. I think the debate really has to be much more nuanced and recognizing that there are some dangers and some uncertainties involved in the use of any chemicals, whether they're organic or synthetic. So we have to focus on living with some degree of uncertainty. There is always going to be some risk involved. We have to mitigate risk and we have to do risk-risk analysis. What happens if we ban glyphosate? We know if we ban glyphosate that every single one of the alternatives, including the organic ones, are more harmful in a human health perspective and from a sustainable impact on the environment.
0: So banning it would be horrific. What's interesting to me is that when I stood in that vineyard and that winemaker said, you know, you should have seen the amount of copper we were using 20 years ago. If you think about the cumulative buildup of that, if they were using it in huge volumes, where are the cancer clusters? Why am I being told I shouldn't drink 1985 Chateau Margot were I to be able to afford it? Because it will poison me. There's a constant analysis done of wine, you know, at a lab level. And there's no dangerous levels of copper sulphate for humans in wine. And I don't see vineyards that used to use it en masse all saying that their soil's ruined. So what's going on there? That's what I don't understand. Well, these are complex issues. For
1: instance, the main criticism of glyphosate comes from an agency called IARC. It's an international agency that looks at hazard rather than risk. And they actually argue you shouldn't drink any alcohol, wine, or hard spirits because it's very carcinogenic. And in fact, alcohol beverages are in a category far higher in terms of their cancer-causing risk than glyphosate. So yes, there is risk in anything. There's no question about it. But the risks to human health is pretty minimal. There's always risk in anything, but that's the point I'm trying to say. We can exaggerate risks. You can find them if you want, and then you can blow them up and use them for a hyperbolic argument because you're trying to create a risk-free world and you don't want the benefits of wine, which happens to be wonderful tastes and flavors and enhancement of food and a wonderful culture that goes along with it. That's how you have to look at every
0: single product as as, as a trade-off. But surely, John, you're in danger of falling into your own trap here. Let me challenge you for a minute there because I asked you about copper sulfate and you started talking about glyphosate. What well, if it's so toxic, and I do understand it's a heavy metal, of course, anything in a high concentration has toxicity, particularly metals. So I totally get that. If copper sulfate is so terribly dangerous, why hasn't it been banned 20, 30 years ago? Because it was everywhere and we all seem to be able to drink that wine and those people who worked in those vineyards, they're still alive. Where's the evidence? Are you saying it's just technically toxic? I'm saying everything is toxic at a certain level.
1: That's the point. The real so-called danger of copper sulfate is not carcinogenic dangers to humans. It's the impact that metals have metal accumulation in the soil. The less we use, the more we vary it with other techniques. There's even zinc sulfate, which is much less toxic to soil, for instance, even though it too is metal based. The concern by EFSA is, is metal in the soil. The reason it wasn't banned 20 years ago is because EFSA and and many agencies around the world never looked at metal-based compounds. Now they've turned their attention to metal-based compounds. And what they found is if they're misused, they can be terribly dangerous to beneficial insects and to the soil itself and soil health. These are nuanced issues. I'm not raising the red flag, I really underscored that I think copper sulfate should be used. We don't have an alternative to it and we are managing it more and more as we're aware of its potential dangers in a more thoughtful way. And I think the farmer that you met is exhibit A in what the future is, which is recognizing it does pose a potential problem and has posed a problem and, and let's move forward with a more judicious way. The same concept should be applied to all crop protection chemicals unless they cross a line that is so bad that we realize that it's worth banning them, regardless of the consequences. Glyphosate, among other chemicals, dicamba
0: is another, doesn't necessarily meet that um, criterion. Are we saying that there needs to be more studies about copper and soil and microbiology? Looking on Google here, there are bits and pieces about it, but it certainly doesn't seem to be an area that's perhaps quite as well researched as it could be. Have you seen studies looking at the in-depth impact of it on soil microbiology and so on? Because I haven't seen much. But of course, it would make sense that a heavy metal would have an impact. I think we should not look to Encyclopedia Google to answer this question. Uh, Copper
1: sulfate has been studied well back into the 1980s. It's actually many hundreds of studies on it. I don't think we need any more studies on it. I think we recognize that it poses real dangers when misused and that there are no alternatives right now and that we need to use it for all kinds of reasons and so let's continue going forward on this but let's put a lot more energy time and research into potential synthetic chemical alternatives and maybe organic ones as well and there's some on the horizon that people think might be helpful but also look to gene editing and crispr as a way to really cut the roots out of this problem which is that cultivars develop disease at a pretty high level, and um, we can get rid of these fungus by gene altering and making them resistant to this problem. So I don't think we need more research in what causes it. I think we need research on what are solutions
0: to the problem. Interestingly, about a year, maybe a year and a bit ago, I think that the commentator Champagne, which sort of governs what happens in Champagne, both they, and I think uh, LVMH, uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, who make, uh, well, they make Moet, they make Hennessy Cognac. Commentator Champagne, I think, said they were going to ban herbicides by 2025. And LVMH said the same thing for their estates and also for their cognac production. What sort of solutions are they going to need? I can't imagine Champagne producers signing up for gene editing anytime soon, given the huge levels of opposition to it in Europe. It gets sort of lumped together, doesn't it, with GM, unfortunately. So, I mean, what's going to happen there? I mean, I guess it sort of feeds slightly into the farm-to-fork strategy in the the EU, where they're saying, big focus on organics. Are we headed for big problems there, then?
1: They could say they're going to ban herbicides, but they're not. They're just going to find an alternative to herbicides, unless they're going to go out there and hand weed, every one of their farms which would be absolutely catastrophically expensive and make champagne not viable in the marketplace they're going to use chemicals they may use natural chemicals which from a toxic point of view are going to be more harmful and they're going to be able to say yes we've phased out the boogeyman of anti-biotech activist glyphosate but they're going to be fooling the people the public even though they're not fooling themselves they're just going to replace it with a more toxic herbicide, which just isn't under the public gun. So that's the kind of hypocrisy we have to deal with. As for gene editing, we, we don't have these alternative cultivars developed. It'll take years for gene editing to develop a potential wine cultivar that is resistant to the fungus that threatens it right now. Over time, I think the people will begin to understand that gene editing is very similar to what goes on in nature. It is significantly different from transgenics, where you move a gene from one plant to the other. And I think over time, as the public gets more educated about this, they will accept it and and embrace it. It's not gonna come overnight, but I think one of the things that it's important is that the organic industry does not use GMOs and gene editing as a punching bag to promote their own products. And that we really look to the solution. How do we reach sustainable agriculture? How do we point agriculture in that direction? And let's draw from the best practices of organic regenerative agriculture, as well as new technologies in the biotech field.
0: Let me ask you then, John, where does Regen Ag fit into this? Every conversation I have at the moment seems to start and finish with Regen Ag. It's increasingly coming under question for, you know, lack of codification. What is it? Is it greenwashing? Are we going to start counting carbon in soil that was already there anyway that we couldn't count? And what about the fact that measuring soil carbon is so incredibly complex because 100 yards down the road, the soil's different? I mean, there's an awful lot of questions emerging, certainly to me, about regenerative. Where does it fit in this sort of paradigm for you? Because we've had this very clear separation, haven't we, sort of organic, conventional. Where does regen fit in?
1: yeah regen is one of those words like sustainable that means one thing to one person and another thing to another person it is undefinable it's a code word it's a rebranding of organic because organic has taken on some negative connotations over the years and also the organic industry has been so aggressive and become defined as so ideological in the minds of many people particularly scientists this term regenerative agriculture was cooked up Uh, came to be used in the 1980s, late 1980s. And at the time, it was applied to organic and to traditional conventional agriculture as well. In the broadest sense, it just means that agriculture should be able to generate itself. You're interested in soil health, which is very probably the central canon of organic agriculture, but you're also interested in practices like no-till, which don't release carbon, which is basically unavailable in organic agriculture and only available in conventional agriculture. So if you really use the term as it was first promulgated, it applies to a range of practices that cut across various ideological conceptions of agriculture. Unfortunately, it's been co-opted by the organic community to rebrand it as a selling point. And once you say regenerative agriculture, it's like saying sustainability. You suddenly have a green cloak on and you're super sustainable man. And no one can question any of your
0: motives because you are clearly doing the right thing. Essentially, it's bullshit. You see, I spoke to an opponent of Regen Ag the other day. He said, it's been captured and rebadged by Big Ag, (laughs) not by the organic movement. So I guess there are different interpretations of
1: who's grabbed it, I suppose. Exactly. It's true. But it's the same thing about sustainability. When when that word became bubbling forth uh, in the early 1990s, it was absolutely applied to generally smaller companies that were being very socially responsible in their practices. The idea that it could be applied to a large corporations was farcical. And now every company in the world has a sustainability division and they've totally co-opted that term. So yes, it can be greenwashed, but it can be greenwashed by companies as well as the organic movement. And that's what it has. And once that happens, we recognize that we shouldn't look for code words like that. Let's look for practices. Let's look for how you are measuring what your claim. That's why in the issue of so-called sustainability or regenerative agriculture, we need to look at life cycle analysis. It's not good enough just to make claims that were green focused. Let's look at things that you're actually doing and do they work. When you look at organics under the life cycle analysis from a sustainability point of view, it's disastrous. I mean, with a 30 to 40 percent yield lag, and the use of till agriculture that releases carbon into the atmosphere, and the use, the reliance on cows, which burp methane, which is 20 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon, you have a sustainability nightmare, and that's been recognized by dozens of dozens of studies. So rather than just focus narrowly on these things, we need a broader concept that focuses on life cycle analysis.
0: Thank you. Um, A final question for you in a moment, John. But a quick anecdote you reminded me of before that. About a year ago, I was at the uh, Wine Paris exhibition, and I went around the organic producers stands, and I just wandered around asking them all, you know, what does organic mean to you? What do you do in the vineyard? What do you know about climate change? What do you know about soil oxidation? Nobody knew anything about soil oxidation. Nobody knew. Nobody knew that tilling wasn't bad. And and one particular farmer said to me, (laughs) "I'm not going to do my comedy French accent." He said in a very strong accent, he said. He said, who's to tell me I, sh- I shouldn't tell my soil? It's good for the land. And I said, "But well, you're oxidizing your soil. You're releasing GHGs. He said, what are these GHGs? How do I know they are there? I cannot see them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say. I thought he's joking, but he wasn't. So there's an awful lot of dogmatism and, and firm belief still out there. I'm just looking at this quote from Wine Spectator about the glyphosate debate. And there's a quote from President Macron of France, which you're going to love. He said, glyphosate, there's no report that says it's innocent. In the past we said asbestos isn't dangerous and the leaders who are allowed to continue, they had to answer for that. He's not necessarily quoting science there. What do we need to do to have a better debate about this? Because it seems to me leaders like that can, can casually kind of propagate mistruths and then it becomes part of the belief system. What do we need to do about that? Is this Do retailers need to do more? Because we surely, if we go, want to be sustainable, we've got to tackle this problem of misunderstanding of science. How do we do that?
1: Well, on that specific issue, farmers are speaking out and scientists have been speaking out for years. And as I mentioned, if you look at the top 20 regulatory and oversight agencies in the world, every single one of them has given a green stamp to glyphosate, and it hasn't made a whit of difference. And I don't think that that's going to change. Maybe I'm getting too political here, but 40 percent of the United States still believes that QAnon is a wonderful organization and uh, that Democrats are involved in an international trade to kill children and feed them to their farm animals. I mean, people get hold on to their beliefs and it's very, very difficult to change them. So it's a slow slog. Luckily, I think people are becoming more comfortable with technology, including biotechnology. The younger generation is more solution focused than means focused. And I think it's just a gradual education process. But there's gonna be these debates for a long, long time. 200 years ago, we had a Luddite movement Um, that believe that uh, the Industrial Revolution should be stopped at its tracks because we're going to ruin rural England. And they were right, it did ruin rural England, and we went through some really tough times. So they had an argument, um, and it was legitimate. But if we hadn't gone through it, we would still be living with 40% child infant mortality and horrible disease problems and low-educated people. Technology is disruptive. Technology changes the world. It's always going to, I think, upset the apple cart, but I think we have to just press onward and have dialogues like
0: this and really spread the word as much as possible. So whenever I say final question, I'm always hoist by my own petard because I then have another one, which is this. Is there a moral imperative, an onus on food producers, anyone producing a product with a label on it, with an ability to talk to consumers, to do more, to have an educated conversation with consumers and have a dialogue about the complexity of choices we face? Because it strikes me that if you're not doing it at that point, what chance have we got to reach consumers? I would
1: like to say yes. I would also recognize that we live in a capitalist society. And if they're going to lose 1% or 2% market share because they're speaking well of the judicious use of crop chemicals or potential that biotechnology could have, in increasing sustainable agriculture, they're not gonna do it. So I don't think just the nature of capitalism suggests that they're gonna put themselves on the front lines until the benefits, meaning the market benefits, the share benefits, start outweighing the negatives. And as of now, the negatives are still higher. So the impetus really comes down to trying to poke and prod the media and frankly put politicians' feet under the fire because they're the ones who have the opportunity to stand outside the influence of the crowd and make some brave decisions and put their communities ahead of the prejudices of people who are ill-informed about science. Will they do it? Some will. I hope more will.
0: Yes. I'm just looking at a quote from the end of this Wine Spectator piece where the president of the Giron Chamber of Commerce said that 15% of French vineyards have no technical solution for abandoning Roundup. One reason he gave was the steepness of the slopes, which means you can't manage weeds by hand. He said, President Macron said we will leave glyphosate, but he also said we'd look for substitutions, he said. Three years doesn't seem possible to me. We don't currently have a substitute molecule. So there is starting to be a more substantive debate in trade media about this. I'm seeing it more and more. I guess we can only hope that we have more of that and we start to collaborate for these sustainable solutions that ignore dogmatism. John Entine, thank you very much for your time today. As ever, good to see you. Good to hear your views and listeners please check out the genetic literacy project it's uh, glp what's the url john for those wanting to check your newsletter out yeah genetic dot oh, there we go check it out there's always some fascinating stuff there and we'll bring this to a close now but john once again thank you so much for your time thank you